attention passengers. Today on Strangers on a Podcast, we have a 1951 classic from Alfred Hitchcock. It contains thrills, chills, handsome men, beautiful women, a trigger-happy cop, and just a dash of murder thrown in for good measure. Join us, won't you? Hello, and welcome to the movie car here at Strangers on a Podcast. We're the Strangers. I'm the conductor. I'm Grimweed. We are the only podcast hosted by two men in different parts of the country who do not know each other. We met through a mutual friend online and have never met in person. I'm in the Midwest, and... I'm on the left coast. Uh, yet through the magic of telecommunications technology, here we are, coming to you, the listener, relaxing, we hope, somewhere comfortable, somewhere that the temperature and humidity are pleasant for you, somewhere you feel welcome and safe for a little while. Here on Strangers on a Podcast, we talk about movies. And if you don't, if you're not somewhere where you feel safe and comfortable, go somewhere you feel safe and comfortable. Get out of where you are. Exactly. That is, that's vital. Uh, I'm a lifelong movie nerd. For a long time, I've made it my mission in life to see the strangest, most obscure films ever made. And I've come across many a gem along the way, some dark, some bright. I cut my teeth watching Godzilla and King Kong as a little kid and moved up through animated movies in the 80s like Secret of Nim and The Last Unicorn. And that's right, I said the 80s as in the 1980s, of which I am a child, and anyone who knows the 80s knows that what was gigantic then, it was well-developed character dramas, like The Big Chill and Working Girl, but also horror, and boy did I jump in the deep end of that as fast as I could. Uh, what about you? Uh, yeah, I pretty much the same. I grew up watching 80s movies, kind of fell into horror through a family member, and, and never wanted to really climb back out of that hole. Um, I like a lot of the mainstream 80s horror as well as the weird what am I watching. I've I've watched movies like Quest for the Egg Salad, which if you haven't watched it, it makes Plan 9 from Outer Space look like Citizen Kane. That's, uh, that is a new one to me. Was it called again? Uh, Quest for the Egg Salad, I believe Quest it was. Quest for the Egg Salad. It's one that was... Obviously filmed in some kind, some guy's basement or cellar, because many times when they're supposed to be in the throne room, it's the big cinder block walls and y you can tell what it is. And I believe there's times you can even see paint buckets sitting off the, to the side. Well, even then, you know, at least they had the heart to do it. At least they finished it and got it out there. I, yes. uh, I haven't, I haven't seen that one yet. I'm going to have to try to find it on Tubi or something. But why would we do this? You ask. That's uh, what I'm asking partially to see if it can indeed be done. You see, our doing a podcast together in both is both a social and technical experiment that, to our knowledge, has not been attempted before. Can two strangers talk over a pair of mics in two different parts of the country and just yak about movies without wanting to kill each other? What the hell do we even know about movies anyway? Uh, we have a layman's understandings of film and film theory, and we both specialize in different genres. Grim you sure about more... that? Well, it Grim sounded Weed like is... we both just said 80s horror. Yes, but you're more of a sci-fi guy, and I'm a little yes. more of a horror guy. Well, we'll see about that. We will have to see. That, we'll see how this kind of unfolds. Who knows? It could we, be that we both really like chick flicks. I don't think yeah, we're going to get to that so point. Either. No. Um, Princess Bride, though. I love Princess Bride. Uh, yeah, there you go. But does it count as a chick flick? Um, it depends on the chick. True enough. What is great about movies? What's not so great about the movies? We're two film nerds talking our way through it. We humbly invite you to join us in the movie car of this train we call life and listen as we discuss the films that inspired the name of our little experiment. For our first episode, we have none other than, all the way from 1951, Strangers on a Train. 1951, wow. Uh, yes, that was a while back. A little bit before my time. A little bit before a lot of our times. It was a different time back then. It was, um, it was, it was an interesting story with, uh, a lot of twists and turns, one could say. It was produced and directed by world-famous Alfred Hitchcock from a screenplay by Raymond Chandler, but, oh, uh, wait, no, not really. It was written by a, a woman named Shenzi Armand based on a treatment by Whitfield Cook. And IMDb lists Ben Haight as uh, doing uncredited work on the screenplay, but all I can find of Mr. Haight's. Uh, 
actual involvement in the writing is being unavailable and suggesting his assistant, the aforementioned Miss Ormond, as an alternative. Adapted from a book. It was adapted from a book by Patricia Highsmith. It was based eponymously and directly on the novel by Patricia Highsmith, her debut novel, actually, which caused some little bit of trouble for Hitchcock. Uh, the film differs from the novel in many respects, and Highsmith, who went on to write the Tom Ripley books, uh, had something of a seesawing opinion about Hitchcock's adaptation of this, her first book. From everything I've heard about her and been able to find out, she... Hitchcock is the master of suspense. She is the mistress of suspense. Her her work is definitely something that I, I would want to look more into. It, I have not seen the Ripley movies. I uh, They were recommended to me by a friend a long time ago, and I've just never been able to find the time to watch them. Uh, and I've never read the Ripley books either, of course. So And not Ellen Ripley. Completely different. No, not Ripley. This, this is Tom Ripley. Uh, Tom Ripley, the uh, serial killing... Uh, socialite. I that would be a was, cool crossover. Yes, Ripley's Game versus Alien. Strangers on Nostromo. Well, if they can make uh, Quest for Egg Salad, they can make that. Cinematography for Strangers on a Train was handled by Robert Burks, and uh, wow, did he have his work cut out for him. Hitchcock had some crazy ideas for this one, and Burks pulled them all off and got an Oscar nomination. If I remember right, he was the one that stuck, through, stuck with Hitchcock through pretty much all of his American classics. He was indeed, and he was a... One of the few. He was... He was a, a fine collaborator for the great director Hitchcock, and one could imagine that uh, the end of their collaboration was the end of the golden age of Hitchcock's great thrillers. Now, according to screenwriter John Michael Hayes, uh, Burks gave Hitchcock marvelous ideas and contributed greatly to every picture he shot during those years. Speaking of Oscar nominations, the only one Stranger on a Train got was for Burks' cinematography. Hitchcock got nominated by the Directors Guild for Outstanding Directing, and the National Board of Review nominated it for Best Film, but both Burks and Hitchcock lost all three awards. It received mixed reviews from critics and made its budget back. and only made its budget back domestically. A lot of people thought that um ah what, what was his name that uh not my just completely blanked the not star? guy the other one Bruno yes Bruno. A lot of people felt that he should have been nominated for best actor for well and that's where they they thought it was interesting because because the way the movie was he could have either gone as best actor or best supporting he could have double dipped and to not get nominated for either one for that character a lot of people thought was a slight on his ability and then he died shortly after this he did die shortly after sadly the film stars Farley Granger as our harried protagonist Guy Haynes, Ruth Roman as his love Anne Morton, and Robert Walker, Hitchcock's first and only choice, stealing every scene he's in as Bruno Antony, inventor of the crisscross double murder scene scenario, and yes, it's that movie. Leo G. Carroll had four years to go before a tarantula put him over a barrel in 1955, playing Anne's father, Senator Morton, in this. The director's daughter, Patricia Hitchcock, plays Barbara, or Babs, Anne's sister, and the senator's other daughter. Casey Rogers, appearing as Laura Elliott here, plays Guy's philandering and soon-to-be-dead wife, Miriam. Rounding out the cast are Marion Lord and Jonathan Hale as Bruno's doting but oblivious mother and his rich, disappointed father, respectively. Howard St. John as Police Captain Turley, John Brown as Professor Collins, Norma Varden as Washington Society woman Mrs. Cunningham, no relation to Happy Days, that was in Milwaukee, which, as Alice Cooper taught us all, is derived from an Algonquin word, Millioke meaning the good land. And Robert Gist as Detective Leslie Hennessy, Guy Shadow for the latter half of the film. There's lots of other people in the movie, but for the most part, they don't have named characters, only bit parts. Basically nobody that matters. Mm, Darville, though. Anyway, everyone does a great job providing the right atmosphere and background for Hitchcock's picture. It was a, it was a fly by the seat of your pants kind of number. They were just, uh, oh, we don't, we will have the script for the next scene sometime tomorrow. We don't know exactly when, but... Shenzi is working on it, and she's just marvelous. That's my Hitchcock impression right there. I don't know how good it is, but that was it. I'm not even going to try. You don't want to try your Hitchcock impression? No, I, I, I'm no. good. Fair enough. As far as casting, Hitchcock wanted William Holden as Guy Haynes, but couldn't get him. William Holden, you may remember. Uh, I believe he was in Bridge on the River Kwai. Yes, that was him. He was also in The Omen 2 for genre fans out there. Uh, Hitchcock couldn't get William Holden. Farley Granger had worked with Hitchcock a few years prior on Rope from 1948. Genre fans out there might remember Granger best from his the 1981 slasher The Prowler with makeup effects by Tom Savini. 
Uh, the studio head, David Warner, wanted only contract players where possible and insisted on Hitchcock casting Ruth Roman as Guy's love interest, Ann Morton. Hitchcock had wanted a blonde and was pretty bitter that he couldn't get one. What is the movie about? Uh, well, basically, you have a tennis player and uh, a, tennis player. A, a rich psycho. A rich psycho. That yes. by chance happened to meet on a train indeed the movie has been parodied in sitcoms like the simpsons and in films like throw mama from the train the story is pretty simple two guys meet on a train and one of them tells the other about his idea for a crisscross double murder plot where two people each with someone they'd like to rub out go ahead and kill the other person's would-be victim i'll take this your allows... murder you take mine exactly this allows the one who wants that person dead to have a completely legitimate alibi, and it allows the actual murderer to be in no way tied to the crime because they didn't even know the victim. I'm making it sound complicated. It's really not. A tennis player wants his current wife out of the picture and happens to meet a psychotic rich boy who wants his father dead. The rich guy, Bruno, mentions to the tennis player guy that they should do the crisscross. Bruno kills Guy's wife with nothing to tie him to the murder, and Guy, in return, would kill Bruno's father. See, Bruno leads a lavish lifestyle, doesn't want to be tied down to a job, you see, and just having his father's money would make it that a lot easier. Guy wants a divorce from his wife, but she's not going to give him one because she wants to milk him for all he's worth. Guy is in love with the senator's daughter and needs his divorce to marry her. Miriam is in love with partying on Guy's dime and getting double teamed by a pair of studs at a local amusement park. That, uh, watching that scene was a little weird. I it was. Say. Um, it really comes off like she's out with two guys. And then when Bruno joins the, the scene and it's like, okay, you're with these two guys and you're just flirting with this random guy. She was making eyes at him. And yet she couldn't see what was going on. And the only reason they kept grabbing her hand was because she couldn't see. She had some pretty thick glasses. Yeah. The, those glasses, there was m multiple pairs and the, the glasses they they had for those close-ups were pretty thick. And she she's what she says is she couldn't even see like when she put her hand in front of her like move her hand in front of her, in front of her face, she couldn't see the blur of her hand. No, the uh it was not the right prescription for the actress by any means. No. And she uh, she was basically blind while wearing them. Yeah. So all the hand holding and everything else was just so she didn't trip. And when you watch her getting in and out of the, the bus or on the merry-go-round, it looks like they're, it 100% looks like they're flirting and mm -hmm. they're just trying to make sure she doesn't get hurt. If only all actors could be so gallant and film productions would be that focused on safety. Oh, wait, it wasn't focused on safety at all. No. In fact, the, uh, the merry-go-round. Merry yes. We'll uh, get to that. We will get to that. Now, the thing is, Guy happens to be sane. See, there's Bruno, Guy. Bruno's insane. Guy is not insane. And by, no. by insane, we're, we're talking about, um, there was talks of blowing up the White House. There were talks of blowing up the White House. Um, Guy hates the woman he's married to and at one point says he wishes he could strangle her, but really doesn't seem like the murdering type. After he finds out the divorce is a no-go, he heads back to Washington to come up with something else. Bruno finds Guy's wife. He follows her to an amusement park and kills her on a little island the park has set aside for people to ride little boats to and fuck in the grass. The two men who were going to fuck Miriam on the island find their body and Bruno makes his getaway. At that point, Bruno finds Guy back in Washington and tells him, I did my end, now you do yours. Guy, being the nice guy he is, does not want to kill Bruno's father. He didn't actually expect Bruno to kill Miriam. But now Bruno could go to the police if he wanted and tell the cops that Guy killed her. Yeah, now let's talk about that for a second here. So Bruno shows up and says, hey Guy, I just offed your wife. Here's her glasses for proof. Why are you carrying around evidence, man? It's, you, you grab the glasses so you can prove to him, yeah, I killed her. But, you know, if you get caught with them. That's it. Yeah. Well, the movie kind of runs on a little bit of fridge logic. It makes sense because it's inside the fridge and that's that's how it is. Uh, Guy is stuck in a trap. You see, he's Guy had the motive and the cops already think he did it. Because Guy finds out from the cops that his wife is dead a few moments later. He goes into the the townhouse where the senator and his daughters live and they say oh guy we have bad news miriam's dead and such but he already now, knew all... this remember he, he, he already knew he already knew because bruno had just told him outside you see all it would take is some falsified evidence given to the police from someone who was at the scene for the cops to send guy to the electric chair guy can't just go to the cops and claim bruno killed miriam because he doesn't have any hard evidence though this is kind of bridge logic in reality, if someone was caught in this scheme and they knew who the real murderer was, they'd probably tell the cops as soon as possible. You would think. One, I would I would have to think so, yes. You would hope. 
Now, the rest of the movie is Bruno putting the screws into Guy and Guy trying to get out of the trap and clear his name. Bruno stalks Guy in the streets and at his tennis matches and even shows up at a party thrown by Senator Morton, the father of Guy's love interest, Ann Morton. Bruno gives Guy a key to his father's house and a map to his bedroom and a gun to shoot the old man, but Guy only uses these to try to enlist Bruno's father as a possible ally against his son. Bruno catches him in the act though and Guy flat out tells Bruno that he's definitely not going to murder Bruno's father. Bruno proceeds to plan his frame job on Guy out of revenge. Guy's only way out is to catch Bruno back at the scene where the murderer is going to try and plant evidence, back at the island of fuckery at the amusement park. So it becomes a race against time with Guy having to win a tennis match and get to the amusement park in time to catch Bruno. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Then watch Throw Mama from the Train for a good laugh. If you haven't seen it, you can, you can find it on Amazon or other places i will suggest though getting the blu-ray which I, I i don't know if the dvd versions have it or not i have the blu-ray version and the the extras on there really make the movie different some hitchcock blu-rays have some really fine extras well there's there's a few things that's like the making of and there's a thing from like m night Shyamalan talks about the movie and then there's a whole thing that's like just old home movies of hitchcock and his wife and daughter when she was just little there there's a lot of interesting information about the struggles they had to go through to make the movie or hmm. just different things that they did to to get certain things to happen like the the nice little shot with the murder and the glasses there's a lot of things on there that it's like okay now i'm kind of looking at the movie in a different light speaking of the shot of the murder and the glasses now when bruno strikes at miriam when she is on the uh, island it is a strange almost kabuki like scene of him strangling her in rather slow motion with the music slowing down you don't see it just seeing it on screen they didn't just point a camera at it no what you see is his silhouette strangling her silhouette as it's reflected on her glasses which have fallen on the ground which was not fun to film from what i was not understand. fun to film no it was incredibly technical they had and uh it was incredibly hard on the actress because she had to fall to the ground no, she had to float float to the ground that was in her instructions were float to the ground which i don't even know how you would do that well from what she said, after six or seven times of trying and falling and hitting the concrete, she found the next time she just floated. Apparently that does it. That's the magic yeah. of it. And, and the every time it's like, no, float. And they'd do it again. And finally she's like, I, this hurts. I think they had to set up like a giant uh, lens. Yeah, uh, it was like a, I believe that she said it was like a bowl-shaped bowl mirror. Mm -hmm. with the camera pointing down into the mirror and their reflection. So it was catching their reflection in the mirror. Mm. Which um, I believe this was the idea that Hitchcock had early on in the pre-production of the film that he was probably telling Raymond Chandler about that just made Raymond Chandler sick of the whole meeting. Because uh, Raymond Chandler says uh, he just wants to shoot the scene through a Coke bottle or something. And it's like, no, well, Albert Hitchcock had this amazing plan to reflect the murder on a on the victim's glasses uh and raymond chandler couldn't stomach the even hearing about it well hitchcock was notorious for not actually liking to make films he he would make his films with the storyboards and put everything out that way and then when it came time to make it make the movie he would say i've already made it he so when bored. it came time to actually film it it was like it has to i've already seen this in my head i needed to need it this way uh, so he was so exacting that it came across with a lot of the actors like he's a pain in the ass this is where i put on the storyboard this is what you have to do such and such one thing i think has to be mentioned about this movie though is that uh robert walker just steals this picture completely uh from what i know about hitchcock there were characters in his movies he cared about and characters he didn't care about and the characters he cared about most tended to be the antagonists of bad guys when hitchcock was filming psycho he didn't care about any of the stuff going on like to catch anthony perkins he just wanted to get back to shooting norman and i i think it, it might not be a stretch to assume that Alfred Hitchcock probably had the same energy and focus on Bruno as the more interesting character in this film. He was a very interesting character, and the fact that he was played by somebody who was known for playing the nice guy. Mm -hmm. Now, Walker was Hitchcock's first and only choice to play Bruno, actually. So apparently uh, Hitchcock saw something in Walker that uh, he just spoke to him and said, uh, 
this is the this is my man to play the bad guy. Well, there, there's a story that um, the actor that played Guy, uh, that he tells that Hitchcock invited him to his house. So he goes there and Hitchcock tells him the story. And he was like, that, that's great, but who's going to be Bruno? Hmm. And just immediately he threw the name out there and he's like, wow, interesting. Hmm. Oh, speaking of the Blu-ray, you have to tell me, does the Blu-ray have film historian commentaries? Yes. Well... I don't know if there's commentary, uh, like a commentary track. I, I didn't pay attention to that. But there is a um, kind of documentary-ish thing that that is one of the extras on there that does have a lot of film historians in there talking about the movie. That's um, So it, it's better than nothing. Um, well, a, no, the, I also I just got the cheap Blu-ray, and I know there are better sets that have more. Is it in the Criterion Collection? mine or is the movie itself it mine i don't believe is it wasn't a criterion blu-ray then uh no i i don't know if it is in the criterion collection or not it it would it could be i i can imagine like uh, the criterion collection would love to have a lot of alfred hitchcock movies in the uh in the collection if anyone out there who's not familiar with the criterion collection by the way it is the it, it is like the premier art house physical media label uh even though they also put out like crap they also put out popular movies like, uh, <laughs> there there is some right crap in there i i like to believe that if it hadn't been the criterion collection some movies would have been lost to a uh, critical yes. memory uh, there, there, like, there's been a few that, that they've managed to save by criterion movies people in fact by physical media because you know what's going to happen someday someday everything's going to be on the cloud and then it will just get censored and not censored by crusaders but censored by if i can quote joe paraphrase joe bob briggs censored by bureaucrats who just say this movie isn't this movie's troublesome. What happens so when the Wi-Fi goes out? What happens when the Wi-Fi goes out? Exactly. But anyway, back to Strangers. Now, we were talking about Robert Walker uh, being cast as Bruno. One of the things that uh, you'll notice as you watch the film Strangers on a Train, or may maybe you won't notice, now, Hitchcock and Walker work together to come up with a performance and make Bruno come off as a very specific type of person. And that is to say, make Bruno as gay as they could without the censor shooting down the movie. It wasn't obvious. It's not blatant. Bruno doesn't talk like Paul Lynn or bat his eyelashes or any cliched such thing. Uh, what he does is modulate his speech with a kind of high society accent and speak with grand flourishes of both eyes and hands, often smiling, cattily. He puts a tiny swish on his words, just a little here and there, a lilt to his speech that might not have read as outright gay way out in the sticks, but would definitely make an impression. There's a little well, swish guy, in his step, too, if you've really watched little, his body language. He, he does, he does a, seem to... If you watch... Like the men in the movie, they, well, guy being an athlete, he, the way he moves, he, he more, he flows through the scene. The other men tend to lumber through the scenes. Bruno floats through the scenes. Bruno is in, Bruno lives in his own little world. Hence the blowing up the white house. Exactly. While guy sits in his chair on the train, Bruno lays on his cabin's couch. Like it was a divan uh, with guy he seems to be sizing it up for the most part though throughout their scenes together in the opening of the film, not so much learning things about him, possibly confirming things he already knew. He knew Guy was a tennis pro. Well, not a pro. He was an amateur tennis player, but either way. Famous uh, either he, way. He knew Guy was attached to a senator's daughter and seeking divorce from a possibly philandering wife. To get into the little homoerotic subtext going on here, to a young, gay, rich man of Arlington nobility, certain facts about Guy's life from the gossip pages would lead to questions about the tennis player's sexuality. Was his marriage to Miriam one of love or convenience to get to the circuit? Was Miriam a philanderer or was Guy unattracted to women and couldn't satisfy her? Was his relationship with the senator's daughter perhaps another marriage of convenience, a society marriage of which no love was required? Such things couldn't be asked outright, but they could be hinted at. Bruno shows a keen, interesting guy throughout the film that seems to border on obsessive, and one has to wonder if we're in a more open world, if Bruno wouldn't have just asked the guy out on a date rather than trying to trap him in a double murder scheme. He seems like the fatal attraction type. He does. Uh, Bruno comes off, well, he comes off like a complete maniac, really. Uh, yeah, as, luckily, as, Guy didn't have any bunnies. As Grimweed has mentioned, uh, he wanted to blow up the White House as part of his plan. He met, he talks about driving 100 miles an hour with a blindfold on. He says he's going to be the first man to land on the moon. Yeah, at one point in the movie, he says he, he believe. well, it, it's I believe it's when they're in, in the train talking to begin with. Uh, 
He says he he thinks you should do everything at least once, mm -hmm. which includes murder, apparently. Includes murder. Uh, there's a great scene in the movie where Bruno comes to Senator Morton's party and casually moves among the high society guests. I can imagine audiences in the 50s freaking out as they watch this because Bruno has been portrayed as really just utterly remorseless. And Hitchcock's really turns the screws up on this bit. At one point, it seems like very like Bruno is about to strangle someone else at the party until he passes out from the raw stress of it. I could be wrong, but I have to imagine Walker's Bruno came off to the audience in the 50s what Heath Ledger's Joker came off to modern audiences. Just well, there, there is a scene, um, it, it's actually before this party, and well, actually it's right after the murder, when there is the blind man trying to cross the road and Bruno just casually walks up to him and helps him helps across the street across like the it's nothing. And yeah. it's one of those times when, okay, this guy just strangled this woman with his bare hands and just casually walks away. With a smile on his face. And it, it's one of those where uh, the first time I, I watched it, it's like, okay, is he doing that? It's like he doesn't care because it's a blind man and the blind man's not going to be able to identify him. Or is he just... Not necessarily the bad guy that you think he still has some kind of a good side. And that does come up a few times in this movie where there, there is a little bit of what is the real story? And that whole passing out that, that you mentioned is kind of one of those times when Hitchcock decided, okay, he's going to pass out because this strangling episode was like he just was in a trance. And it took a, took him over and passed out. So yeah, I couldn't help myself. I, there was something wrong. Do you think it was possibly traumatic for Bruno to relive the strangling? Like perhaps he he actually had a bit of PTSD of some kind from trying to strangle someone again. And oh, okay, so we it. should say that there there is a little bit more to this scene. Mm -hmm. There there is another person that Bruno happens to be looking right at while this happens, Babs. who also has glasses on and does bear a slight resemblance. To the woman he murdered. Miriam. And yes, he's look looking at her brings back those memories. And it's like, he's looking at, the, at her and he's seeing the reflection of the lighter in the glasses as he saw it that night. And it's, it's telling, it's showing you that he's flashing back and this flashback, like you said, it, the trauma of that. Possibly. Yeah. Well, there, there was the other instance where he, he had fixated on her at, at the club, which we didn't talk about, but yeah. that scene's really, he, he meets and pretends to be somebody he's not. He, he, he's, he, I think he goes about saying he's a friend of guy. Doesn't he? And he, I know he definitely introduces himself to, uh, to, uh, friends of the senators who are the aforementioned Madame and Monsieur Darville, um, who he met at the tennis club while guy was, uh, playing tennis. Um, but as far as uh, the scene at the party where he strangles someone, uh, he's having this discussion with these two women about what would be the perfect murder. And he try is trying to make a case that strangulation is the perfect way to kill somebody. I believe at the party, when Bruno is doing his, his strangle show and uh, traumatizes Babs, uh, and then he is he passes out and is escorted out of the party when he wakes up. I believe uh, Anne Morton, the leading lady uh, played by Iris Roman, uh, she puts the pieces together uh, with Guy shortly after having seen Bruno strangle someone. Okay, uh, so. let, let's go back to that for a minute. So they they meet at the club, the tennis club, yes, and she sees his tie clip. Mm -hmm. which we we were shown the tie clip very specifically the on the train and he explained he's got to wear it because his mom gave it to him right so she sees the tie clip and she recognizes it because the scene before when they were she walking, was walking through around, uh, jefferson monument or something yeah guy show got her and guy are walking bruno shows up and calls to guy guy turns around walks over to him she turns and from a distance can see that tie clip but yeah so she sees the tie clip and she then sees it again at the at the tennis club and i think guy when when bruno accosted them the first time at the monument or wherever uh guy says he had Anne, never met him before never met him before don't uh, it was just some fan or yeah. something like that he and he says you know he's just trying to he's trying to keep uh Anne out of the trap he's in he, he doesn't want anybody to know about the 
the murder and what he knows about it. Well, so and, and guys you, you really novel. can't blame him because when she did finally confront him and, and say, did he do it? Her reaction was, how did you get him to do it? Oh, yeah. And he did say, well, because they, I didn't go to the cops or anything because they would say the same thing that you just did. And this is a woman that they're talking about marriage and she goes right to how did you get him to do it? So she, yes, even she kind of assumed Guy was in on the plan. When Guy was not, everybody, let's just be clear. Well, was Guy in on the plan? Uh, he Bruno definitely mentions, would be the the only person to really benefit. Well, Guy was the guy. Bruno mentions the crisscross plan to Guy in the train and guy just says yeah bruno that's great <laughs> and he leaves his lighter in the cabin with bruno should he have been a little more cautious uh, well one he probably shouldn't have left his lighter but he clearly wasn't giving much of okay so early on he in the conversation the lighter is brought up and throughout the whole scene on the train the lighter is right there in the bruno floor. is playing with the lighter bruno has the lighter in his possession pretty much the entire time so something like that where yeah you give him a, the lighter and spend that much time talking to somebody and eating a meal and everything okay now it's time to leave because i'm at my stop i could see how the lighter would be left behind and i don't think uh oh yes yeah, time to think of it uh when bruno mentioned the crisscross plot uh guy was still gunning for the divorce so yes. guy was just getting off the train to get to Metcalf, his hometown, which Bruno did not like. It was like, oh, Metcalf? Why would anyone go to Metcalf? So after he gets off the train, Guy goes to meet Miriam, his wife, and talk about the divorce that they both need. And she flat out says she's not divorcing because she's quite happy in the situation as being the wife of a tennis star. Yeah, and she's also pregnant with somebody else's child. She is. And uh, pretty much just flat out says... I'll just tell him it's yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... And it was her idea for the divorce to begin with. So Hitchcock really brings a lot of plot elements to play to really put Guy in a rough spot. Of course, he has Miriam, who he would like to divorce from, but uh, she is not cooperative. And then he has Bruno, who kills Miriam, and he gets he's out of the frying pan into the fire and such. Uh, Guy couldn't have known about Bruno's wanting to kill Miriam or anything. Couldn't have taken it seriously because uh, when he was getting off the train and absentmindedly left his lighter with Bruno, he was still quite hopeful for the actual divorce to go through and for Miriam to be reasonable. So, Guy was not in on the crisscross plan. No. But everything Bruno said in the opening scene on the train was amusing to guy but uh as far as bruno like i made this comparison between Heath ledger's joker because i just think that the audience would have been um just would have been fascinated with uh, what's this guy gonna do next oh my gosh he's strangling an older lady at the party oh my gosh he's passing out now and uh i i, I could see how hitchcock would probably want like enjoy having the scenes where it just shows bruno walking around in his bathrobe because you're just getting more bruno and uh, uh hitchcock liked the darker characters you know, like I've, he liked norman bates a lot more than any of the other characters in psycho he would have liked bruno a lot more in strangers on a train uh the point of the fact is is uh bruno was sort of the star of the picture and farley granger and the other actors kind of just had to all pick up the pieces as to what they could do performance wise and sadly uh, i believe as grimweed mentioned earlier robert walker died shortly after filming due to reaction he had to an experimental drug that was meant to cure his alcoholism i believe that's what happened to him um actually what well he he was pretty much a stumbling drunk from the description i i've been able to find but yeah he he was pretty drunk and he wasn't feeling too well apparently he continued to drink and he suffered from depression why would alcohol and depression go to him um i think is what it was that there was no sorry that what he was he was given a depressant that's what it was he was given a depressant and this was before they knew you don't give somebody that's dead drunk a depressant and hmm. that was what killed him ah so a compounded with the alcohol and uh yeah I gotcha. Well, Farley Granger went on to record as being heartbroken by Walker's death and uh, said it was the far too soon for a very talented actor. And that's another sad comparison between Walker and Heath Ledger's Joker. Neither of them got to reap the rewards of their amazing performances as villains due to a pharmaceutically induced early demise. 
but we'll always have Bruno. We'll always have the Joker. Well, indeed. Also, when Hitchcock was casting the movie, he wanted a blonde star that he could put on a poster and sell as a classic female lead. The fact that Hitchcock preferred blondes is a basic truism in film. Whoever his female lead was, he liked them blonde, and he liked them dead on screen in some cases. Ruth Roman was not a blonde. Therefore, Hitchcock made her life hell during shooting. And one can only imagine what kind of hell Ruth Roman had to go through with the Hitchcock outright telling her flat out many times through in shooting that you're, you weren't my first choice for this role. You weren't even my second choice. So She did great, and she looked amazing in those dresses. She looked like a princess. Disney would have been proud. Yes. I believe uh, I found a quote from Farley Granger talking about Alfred Hitchcock, and he said that Alfred Hitchcock always needed someone to torture on the film set, and Ruth Roman was it in that movie. So we can only look back and say, like, we can watch the movie and enjoy it for what it is, and we can admire Ruth Roman's performance, but let's compare and contrast the characters of Babs and Anne. Now, Babs is a vivacious young woman, uh, who is the senator's daughter, younger daughter. Played by Hitchcock's daughter. Played by Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia, who also was in Psycho. Now, Babs gets to, uh, when when Guy comes into their lounge, uh, Babs gets to make these wild statements about how, well, the police will be after you, Guy. We know that for a fact. She gets to intellectually jump one step ahead of everybody in the room and show off how smart she is from reading murder mysteries and all these other things. She basically is like what murder mystery podcast listeners are now. Exactly. And uh, and she just comes off as very as a very sweet character and a very likable character. Whereas Anne isn't so much. Anne comes off as as fairly distant and fairly grave, you could say. You have two female characters really, Babs and Anne. And Babs is this again, like I said, vivacious uh uh forward and uh astounding young woman who is who giggles who's happy who wears her glasses proudly and uh and, and comes off as this charming young woman and whereas Anne is more this more reserved uh statuesque senator's daughter and later in the film Anne actually goes to Bruno's mother and tries to enlist her aid against her son Bruno's mother is very wow doting oblivious well, am, am I remembering it wrong? Oh, no. She she is very wow. I mean, that's yeah. all I can say. She is very wow. She, yeah, so oblivious is not even enough. No, it isn't. I struggled with the term, actually, there. I, I Oblivious doesn't even cover it. She Her son is a complete psychopath. and she We find out denied. about the, the plan to blow up the White House from her when she yeah. jokingly says to to Bruno something to the effect of, I hope you've given up on your plan to blow up the White House. Oh, mother, where would the president live? Or something like and that. And then they ju just casually laugh it off. They were moneyed aristocrats who were able to make jokes about things that one shouldn't joke about, really. Um, when she says, oh, Bruno, was your plan to blow up the White House? You get the sense that, oh, for her, it's just a silly game that her son played. Oh, Bruno says the most wild things. We as the audience watch this and we realize, no, Bruno probably actually had a plan to blow up the White House. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. And by the way, we're being flagged by the NSA right now because we're talking about blowing up a White House. Multiple uh, times, yeah. Multiple I, I times. I was just thinking, we have said that way too many times. So, well, so hello, NSA. and uh, We don't plan on blowing up the White House and we don't we do advocate not. for it. We, we no. want people in the White House to be safe and we want the House itself to remain standing. Do not exactly. blow it up. Do not, no. Don't uh, be a Bruno. Anyway, I just wonder if uh, maybe all of Anne's best parts and best lines got given to Babs. Because Babs gets to run off and uh, distract policemen for Guy to get away towards the end. Babs gets to say all these wild and accurate things about Guy's possible guilt. How old was she supposed to be in this movie? I thought, I got the feeling that she was probably like a... Like I was a, thinking like she was kind of the like a teenage sister or something yes which like 16 17 18 yeah and if you look at the like a debutante yeah well if you look at that so you have the older more refined more mature that over the years and being a senator's daughter and everything she's been more straight-laced and everything and then you have the the teen high energy 
kind of rebellious nature when you don't really have a lot of girls in that time, especially in the movies, openly discussing being locked in a freezer with dismembered body parts. Was that part something you said in the movie? Yes, that was actually at the tennis club. She is talking about one of the cops and says something about he was locked in the this, I think it was a freezer. He was locked in there with, with a leg for hours. And that's why later on, there's that scene when he's, ta- when Guy is talking to this cop and says, and they're talking about having a sleeping bag and staying warm and everything. And he says that he's her new favorite charity. So he's get, she's going to make sure he stays warm hmm. because of the whole being stuck in a freezer with a dismembered leg. It doesn't, but it doesn't stop her from deceiving him utterly to let guy get away. No. And, but I think that the kind of bubbly teenage spirit for that character, it made it to where the whole distraction thing, it kind of all worked. And the relationship that she had with that cop, kind of like the flirty teenager that's going after the older man, because she, she also remember did look at Bruno. To begin with. Do you think she was attracted to Bruno to some extent? Or, or well, did she when she it? first saw him, the, I don't remember the words she used, but it was like, yeah, who's do- who's tall, dark, and handsome over there? Ah. And then she- Good luck with that. Yeah. Then she was kind of like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, he's creeping me out. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, whole strangulation at the party. But uh, perhaps Babs could inject some lightness and comic relief into the film. She did. She did a great deal. Yeah. And Patricia Hitchcock did a fine job portraying uh, this young woman who like came off as this feisty Washington debutante. Honestly, having seen this movie like three or four times and not remembering it as well as you. Thank you. Well done, Mr. Grimley. Well, so I, I will admit going from watching the movie to the extras, just in that, I watched the movie. It's like, okay. And then watch the extras like, oh, okay. Hmm. Those sound like good extras because uh, the best the best featurettes and little extras on, on Blu-rays and DVDs are the ones that teach you about the movie and expand your understanding of the film. And otherwise, they're just, uh, you know... Filler. Filler, yes. One of the things that uh, struck me about the film uh, was Hitchcock's use of uh, time, the intercuts that he had towards the end when Guy is at the tennis match and Bruno is on his way to the island. Guy has figured out that Bruno will only move at night and that if they can get there before sunset then he can catch bruno in his in in the act so guy is racing to the amusement park to intercept bruno and as you yeah well let's let's step back here what did we do so we have a tennis match where guy decides well if i can just finish this right away just do the three sets and be done and i can sneak out of here and get away from these cops that are following me so i can get to this island before Bruno, this tennis match, it it is Hitchcock, which is really the only reason why I think you could get away with it because the way he builds the tension, it is a long scene of tennis. It is indeed. Um, But the tennis is metaphoric of him struggling valiantly now rather than passively. Which is kind of against his nature. Yes. Uh, And there is even a, while he's playing the tennis match, uh, it even cuts to one of the announcers who's following the tennis match who says, Guy Haynes is playing like he's never played before today. We are seeing a completely more aggressive Guy Haynes or something like that. Yeah, and, which is why I brought up the Gens's nature. Because if you look at how he's acted throughout the rest of the movie, it was more reactionary exactly. rather than proactive. It was, okay, exactly. well, this happened. How do I react to it? And just kind of go with the flow type thing whereas in his tennis match they said he normally is just kind of a go with the flow play it slow between points and then it's playing and all of a sudden it's super aggressive taking risks and and that's what he's going out there to do is be aggressive and take a risk trying to stop bruno Mm -hmm. so it's symbolic of guy's evolution as a character and perhaps what we see in turn with Bruno is that uh, while Bruno is a hedonist and a debauched psychopath, uh, he is also at the mercy of his own whims, and he is also at the mercy of his own ego. He could have planted the evidence earlier and just gotten away, but Guy was right about him that he would only do so at night under the cover of dark. So there is a scene where Guy is racing on a train to get to Metcalf, and... Uh, 
it'll cut to guy on the train it'll cut to guy at the station it'll cut to guy and you just see bruno sitting on a picnic table with the sun getting closer to the horizon in each every time it returns to bruno you see the sun getting a little closer and you know the guy's time is running out but you know that bruno was sitting there doing nothing and then bruno was uh i think i remember uh when bruno dropped the lighter down the grate uh he immediately runs for help to uh enlist the aid of various passerby uh, saying i need someone to jimmy up this grate or something like that it's like who do we get to get this thing out who do we get to get this thing open and all these people are just like you dropped your lighter pal what's the problem yeah it's, and suddenly it's a cigarette case the cigarette oh he said he dropped his cigarette case yeah the lighter yeah but you know bruno's not a small guy he's not and he's gotta put his arm kind of deep in that hole to reach that lighter he does indeed i'm surprised it didn't mess up his suit a lot more than it did I'm surprised he didn't get stuck. He very well could have. And that's uh, uh, watching that scene. That's where my mind is going. Is that he is making a pretty big scene trying to get a lighter where if he would have just left that, yeah, he couldn't have planted it. But you know what? Now he's got no evidence tying him to it either. He could have just walked away. He could have. But instead, he is so set on getting Guy framed because Guy double-crossed him and didn't go and kill Bruno's dad. Mm. The whole time he he's or his plan was you go kill him. I go kill her. Nobody knows because we have no connection. Oh, by the way, now let me introduce myself to all of your friends and family, hmm. which actually I think at the party he's introduced as friends of somebody else's. Monsieur and Madame Martavel. But still you're he showing up a lot invitation. of places. Yeah. And they know he's a, he's not necessarily a friend, but he is an acquaintance of guys. Mm -hmm. And one thing I think we have to mention is the merry-go-round scene. That old man. It, it is pretty wild. Okay, that first of all, that cop who shot into the is responsible for everything. That, <laughs> that amusement park could sue that police officer for damages to the merry-go-round, for who knows what, just because their reputation is shot now because of that accident no pun intended yeah sorry no pun intended on that one um no but, but yeah uh, it, that that cop is responsible for well almost responsible for the death of a child who i love that kid by the way it happens in the film everyone listening guy makes it to the amusement park and stops bruno from getting on a boat to go to the uh sex island and well it wasn't so much they, he was he, stopped they, him from getting on the boat there were no boats oh yes there were no boats and uh Bruno tries to make his escape on a merry-go-round in a way, and a uh, guy follows him onto the merry-go-round, and the police are there, and they are chasing Guy Haynes at that point because they think this is they they have all the proof they need that he is the murderer of his of his wife Miriam at this point because he's returned to the scene of the crime. Yes, and they see Guy running away and decide, oh well, let's just shoot him. And they miss because he's on a merry-go-round and a moving target. And this person probably wasn't that good of a shot. But they did shoot the operator who was standing at the middle of the merry-go-round who proceeds to die and fall on the controls. It shot him in the head. Shot him in the head. He falls on the controls and the merry-go-round speeds up maniacally. It just goes faster and faster and faster. Everybody except for one small boy is on there screaming and panicking. His, the boy's mother is out there screaming about her son, and the kid is laughing and having a blast and ends up getting in the middle of the fight. The merry-go-round is going so fast that at one point, Guy is holding on to one of the, the brass poles on the edge of the merry-go-round, and he is flying through the air, holding on for dear life with his legs completely horizontal. That is, it is cartoonishly fast. It yes. is dangerously and ridiculously fast. And That part of it was filmed on a set or on a stage. They had the screen behind them, so all the scenery is just whipping by. And they had fans. So it looked, for all intents and purposes, as if this merry-go-round is spinning fast. However, not that entire scene was filmed on a set. There was the stuntman who had to go under the merry-go-round to shut it off. And they had to get a shot of the stuntman moving under the merry-go-round which is one of the few scenes that hitchcock actually has said that he stressed out worried about and at many points thought it was a mistake to do because of how dangerous it was to have this man actually crawl under a merry-go-round whipping around at that speed the guy basically had to crawl on the ground flat like a worm and if he had raised his head 
at all into the spinning bottom of the merry-go-round, he would have possibly been decapitated or at least think every crushed. movie you've ever seen with a military boot camp and they have to crawl through the mud under razor wire. Exactly. That's what this guy was doing under a merry-go-round. And okay, that merry-go-round is going fast. When you hit the brakes on something going that fast, you do it gradual. No, he slams them brakes on. He stops it. At which point the merry-go-round completely loses control on the axis it is attached to and throws everybody helter-skelter all over the amusement park. And in the process, falling to pieces and crushing Bruno. Which is what we all wanted. Because now, guys, we get at the at the end of the movie, Bruno is being removed from the... or Well, they pull some wreckage off of Bruno, and Bruno holds on with his last breath, still trying to frame Guy. With his last breath, he says, I tried, Guy. I tried to get your lighter off of the island for you. Guy asks him about the lighter. He says, just tell him the truth. And he says, no, your lighter is still on the island where you left it. Yeah. And, and then, then dies. He, he dies. His hand opens, and there's the lighter. The cops know he was lying. Uh, the boat operator is able to identify Bruno as the guy who came off the boat that night when the girl was killed. And Guy is cleared. And it's a happy ending. And the monster is dead. Now the the horrible boogeyman has been banished to the darkness from whence it came. But that's been. not the end of the movie. Uh, the end of the movie is, uh, well, there's two endings of the movie, but... Um, well, okay. I was wondering if you were going to say that. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the English version? And the American version. Yeah. So that's not actually a thing. It's not. No. Uh, what happened was when, when you make a movie and you go to show it to the studio or whoever and say, okay, this is what we got, you don't necessarily show them the exact thing. The the so-called English version, what that one was, is the movie itself for that ended when Guy makes a phone call to the senator's house to let everybody there know he's okay, he'll be home tomorrow, and asks for some clothes because he basically is still nasty, sweaty, stinky, and wearing clothes that he threw on in a cab right after, after this tennis, tennis match. match. Um, mm -hmm. So... At this point, the two sisters give each other a hug. It fades to black. That is the so-called English version. That is actually the previewer that was shown to the studio or whoever. It was shown to them without that final scene on the train. So they just hadn't tacked on that final scene. And the, the whole English version thing was actually because the canister that the film was in was mislabeled as English version. Ah, and so the legend was born. Yes. And the prophecy fulfilled. And this is, of course, just according to the stuff that the guys the that made bought. the film were saying on the Blu-ray. And that's the kind of things you can learn from physical media, everybody. So stop streaming everything and buy some physical media for crying yes. out loud. It's good, for the, it's good for the economy. It's good for you. It's good for the world. And uh, and I will do I, my best to try and remember to put in the description for this a link so you can go and get this exact copy so you can watch these amazing great features. bonus features that I'm talking about. And they they really did. For me, it, it changed the movie. I'm glad. Because this has been a process. We watched this movie a while ago. And life happened. So in that time, I forgot the entire movie. He did. It's awful. Which for me is very unusual. I don't generally forget things like that. Um, I'm usually, you see it once, you remember it, you don't have to worry about seeing it again because you already saw it. But sitting to watch this, there were so many things. It's like, I don't even remember any of this. The few things that I did remember were things that I had seen on YouTube already or things that I remembered it because it was something that had been parodied, parodied, parodied in something else. Like Throw a Model from the Train. Yes. Which, which by the, is great another movie. great movie. Another great movie everybody should watch. Um, but like Crystal, Dan DeVito, and Ramsey. Last night, I sat and watched this again, and it's like, okay, yeah, it, it's a good movie, and it's good that I'll have a fresh memory of it. And then I decided, you know, let me check out all these special features and see what else there is. And the movie was suddenly a whole different movie. Hmm. And it, it's one of those things that I think a lot of people now will miss out on. Um, there is actually a YouTube channel. I can't remember her name, but I will. I'll put 
her her name in the description. Um, but she is a millennial that watches movies, and mm. it's all these movies that you think she should have seen by now, but hasn't. Poor poor girl. I think their name is Ashley Burton. But anyway, so she watches these movies and it's like a reaction channel, but she gives her take on them and she watched Psycho. Really? And you, you never have it. You never really have any of the kills. The kills themselves are kind of bleh. There's a lot of different things about it and that, that just the camera angles and things like that. And it wasn't until after she watched it and gave her opinion of it. And her commenters said, well, you know, that movie, when it was made, you couldn't show murders. You didn't, you couldn't show those things on screen. So that movie itself, it pushed the boundaries. And it's like the murders were all implied. There was no Mm. blood. It was chocolate syrup. And there was no this, there was no that. Everything about the movie and how it was done was explained more to her. And all of a sudden she has a newfound respect for it. And I think that's where a lot of, especially Hitchcock, because he had a way of building things up that I don't think translate well now, unless you're somebody that really likes to just sit and get deep into something. I love special features. I love audio commentaries. I, I buy them just for those. I like. I will buy a Blu-ray. Just for, oh, this has an audio commentary by the director. Oh, this has behind the scenes. I, there are some movies that if they have that great, any of any Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell movie. Oh, great cut. Yeah. Which I say any Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell movie, even any movie Sam Raimi does, Bruce Campbell's around somewhere, but any movie where Bruce Campbell is the starring role rather than just someone that pops up. The evil dead movies, basically. Well, yeah. All right. For, for the most part, but even, yeah. well, even looking at just, okay. I say Sam Raimi, Raimi. Forget Sam, because even Ted, like mm-hmm. man with a screaming brain with, with Bruce movie. and Ted, any, anything like that, the commentaries are so much more fun. They are. But then and commentaries on something like The Godfather, which could be very informative, but wow, I'd rather just watch the movie than to listen to someone talk while I'm watching the movie. Oh, co- audio commentaries are, they can be hit or miss. Uh, some of my favorite ones are done by film historians uh, about such and such movie from the 30s or 40s but sam raimi does great commentary like you said uh especially sam and bruce when they're together in a commentary booth they it's hilarious i think guillermo del toro does amazing commentary yeah. as well it's just there, there's Rob i Zombie can't a good find one. it that i know i i know it it exists because i remember specifically watching it and listening to it and being amazed with how they set it up but for serenity okay the there's a commentary on river's fight scene with the with the reavers uh where joss whedon says uh my career is all about uh superhero women destroying monsters or something like no that. actually in, in this they're talking about just that scene itself they just break that scene down and how they did the lighting for it oh and normally it's like, okay, yeah, the technical stuff, yeah, it's kind of, it's cool, whatever. The detail they went into on it about where, where to set lights and how to set the lights and everything else, it, it was it's like, okay, I would never have even thought about that watching that scene. And if you sit and watch it, knowing the, the struggle they went through to get it lit just right and how they had to shoot it. It makes the scene feel different, which is kind of, I guess the same thing, what I've been saying about the extras on this, it, it just makes, makes you look at it differently. And that's what uh, physical media can do, or just, I guess it's just expanding your knowledge. This episode sponsored by physical media, physical media, (laughs) which we love. Let's actually just sit, talk about the movie, the movie, not talk about the details, talk about who was in it. Talk about the movie. When you sat down to watch it to begin with, what were you expecting? I was expecting the movie. I had seen it before when I was eight years old, and I didn't have many clear memories of it, but I remember liking it when I was eight years old. I just remember falling into it when I was a kid and thinking this is one of the most suspenseful and uh, thrilling movies I've ever seen. Because I remember watching it when I was a a young child uh, with my parents in the living room on TV, and uh, we... I and I just remember being completely engrossed, and I remember adoring the characters, uh, or I remember adoring uh, or being terrified by Bruno, even though, as years went by, I forgot the character's name. 
so what it, the movie was for me when I sat down with it, it was a refresher course on this on this film that uh, really sort of opened my eyes to what uh, thrillers can be like uh, years and years ago. I hadn't seen it until we sat and watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, yet I felt like I knew it because I had seen Throw Mama from the Train. Well, yeah. So I kind of already knew one's gonna one's gonna do the other's gonna say no. And there's been so many references and parodies and and things over the years that I kind of felt like I knew really what was going on already and knew where the movie was going to go. So it took me out of it, which is, I think, why I just didn't remember so much. Because everything I'd already known, I think, sitting last night with the more limber mind kind of helped put all the, the preconceived notions and push out the whole Danny DeVito, Billy Crystal combo versus the guy in Bruno. It, it, it's, it's a different world. You it's can't put Danny DeVito movie. and Billy Crystal together and compare that to this. So yeah, if you yeah. have seen Throw Mama from the Train, yes, it is the same story, but it is not the same story. No, it's not. Uh, Throw Mama from the Train is much more comedy. The movie, uh, it like I said, uh, Strangers on a Train, it, for me... The first watch was a rewatch, and uh, it it just couldn't live up to the wonder that I saw it with the first time I saw it as a child. You're going to make this movie today. What do you change, if anything? What would I change today? Uh, um, what would I change? What would I change? What would I? Uh, all right, you know, this is a challenge. You're you're putting me on a horrible suicide quest right now. Uh, what I, would I change I, about not, a Hitchcock film? I'm not asking about like who would you cast i'm okay we got the same cast unless there's somebody from that era that you could say she should have been in this role or he should have been in that role but just say same cast just the movie itself is there anything you would change i would just up the homoeroticism nate the homoerotic thing between guy and bruno and make uh make that a little more explicit perhaps that uh i i would have bruno maybe offer guy a way out but it would involve running off with them or something i don't know uh uh let's see i would probably combine the characters of ann of ann and babs uh so that you know there's but then it wouldn't pass the bechdel test at all because we wouldn't have two female characters unless you yeah we wouldn't, well at we, the same time you then would not have anyone to go and distract the cop and goes to distract the cops. Does it fine. Or have the bumbling old senator go and distract the cop. He wasn't even there. I know. Well, see, there you go. It, you, but uh, I bet he, he could probably distract the cop perfectly well because, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to throw the senator in jail for distracting a cop? I doubt it. This is the 50s. Also, I would set it in the 50s. You know what? That's another thing I would do. If I were remaking the film, I would set it in the 50s. It would be it, it, first, first shot of the film. It would say 1951 Metcalf new york or something so you would specify date and location yeah it'd be a period flick and and then i would stop myself from trying to remake a hitchcock movie like gus van sant and the horrible mistake that the psycho remake was i think i would shorten the tennis match shortening okay well see look you, you here i go on this rant about combining characters and all this stuff and you're just saying eh, just shorten the tennis match it's fine you well, see, I, I think Grim. having that difference in the sisters and like, like we said before, the more straight, mature, just, just juxtaposed with the just kind of a, a wildness, which wasn't even really wild. It was just like exuberant. Feisty. Yeah. And that let them have like, okay, here is the one that you can use to have go and distract or go and do this because that's that personality. While you can also have the, the more straight go and talk to the mom or use as the, this is the one that you want on your arm when you go to try and get elected. Mm. All good points. So this is the first movie. So it's not like we can compare it to others that we've watched so far. Where where does this fall on your Hitchcock scale? It's up there. As far as how it stands in Hitchcock's canon or oeuvre, I, I suppose. I don't think I pronounced it right. Is it oeuvre or oeuvre? And Hitchcock's filmography. Filmography, they'll work too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I stick with the simple to pronounce words. Good work. And even then I screw a lot of them up. Thank you, Grim Wade. It's 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 a it's a it's a great Hitchcock movie from the era it was made. But it is but it's not the golden age of Hitchcock. It it wasn't it's not the great thrillers that he was gonna start making a few years later. Psycho for me is one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Even though once you've seen it, you know. But it's yeah. it's one of those where you've seen it, you know, but it's still fun to watch. Don't tell anyone ever about Psycho. Do yourself a favor and them a favor, people out there listening in the movie train. Don't tell people about Psycho in the shower scene. Just let them find out on their own. Yeah. I, 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 I watch a lot of YouTube reaction videos. Mm-hmm. And I always like watching Psycho and the first Friday the 13th. <laughs> because even though so much is out there and so much has been said, and it both of those movies have been referenced in so many things, it always still comes off as a surprise. And it amazes me. Mm. But for me, Psycho, just because it's one of those movies that it can be a scary movie, but it's not really a horror movie. No. It's more just, it's a psychological thriller. There are horrifying aspects to it. Um, it's a, it's a suspenseful psychological thriller. That's, that's the way I see it. Yes. Um, and yet you can watch it with somebody and they'll get freaked out. You can watch it with somebody and they'll just have that white knuckle suspense where they're just on the edge of their seat. Can't wait for the next thing. And then after it's done, it's like, whoa, this one, you sit and you watch that and there is that suspense and he builds it up. And then when it's done, it's like, okay, let me sit and unpack that for a minute. But then you're done. Yeah. Once you're, once you've digested the film, there's pretty much nothing else. Yeah. And that is coming from someone that knows nothing about movies. Watch Hmm. the movie and decide for yourself. But I will say to anybody, yes, watch it. It is a good movie. It deserves to be watched. So why don't you let them know some of the movies that they can expect coming up? Oh, we've got a few movies coming up. We're going to try to get into uh, The Fifth Element, uh, Bubba Hotep. And uh, we've got something special lined up for uh, May season. But we have to keep some things under our hat. I'd say expect a lot of horror. Expect a lot of horror. Expect a lot of obscurity. Some obscurity is good. Uh, I think uh, we've we've decided on The Day the Earth Stood Still is another classic that we'll be uh, tackling. But don't uh, be surprised if we pull out things like Toxic Avenger or Cannibal Holocaust, random trauma movies, or just things that should never have been made. But I think we're about to wrap up. I'd like to thank Grimweed for joining me on the movie car, and I'd like to thank our mutual friend for introducing us. Join us next time when we discuss another film, and stay safe out there, everybody, and do not hurt one another. Do not tear families apart, and try don't to blow love up the, the White world House. we live in. Don't blow up the White House. Exactly. And thank you, Grimweed. And I think that will do it. And we are off. See you next time. See you next time, everyone. Bye. Attention passengers. We hope you liked the show or at least thought, hey, these guys have some potential. Please help us out with some stars, thumbs up, likes, subscribes, or whatever rating system is used by whatever app you're listening to us with. Oh, and hey, let us know. What was your favorite scene of the movie?